Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second lecture of this season's um, European Neobank Lecture Series. This series is organized jointly um, between by the Leo Beck Institute London and by the German Soviet Institute, my name is Gerhard von der Rich. Andreas Gessrich, the director of the German Soviet Institute um, for this cooperation. My name is Daniel Wildmann, I'm the deputy director of the Leo Beck Institute. This year's topic is, as most of you know, the politics of land, archaeology, architecture, and city planning in Israel. And that's a very difficult and real contested topic. It's also a topic which is at the crossroads of scholarship and politics. And I'm therefore extremely happy to welcome and introduce our speaker of tonight, who really is active there at the crossroads between scholarship and politics. Dr. David Aburas. David has gained um, his PhD in geography and re regional development at the University of Arizona. Or in other words, he's a political geographer. He's teaching as a lecturer at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev and also at the Sophia College. But primarily, he's engaged with Arab Bedouin citizen rights. So for example, from 2007 to 2009, he was the co-director of New Horizon, an Arab Jewish center for dialogue and shared, that's important, shared society in Israel. From 2010 to 2014, and he was director of the Negev project of Adala, the legal center for Arab minority rights in Israel. And just to let you know, Adala is the first Arab-run legal center in Israel. Since 2014, he's the co-executive director of the Abraham Fund Initiatives. <coughs> this is an organization that promotes equality, coexistence, and cooperation between Israel's Jewish and Arab citizens. His current fields of interest are, firstly, the impact of the Prover Plan on Bedouins, I'll come to that in a second, Arab-Jewish relations, and also um, the Arab voter participation in Israel on the occasion of the recent elections, and always got elected um, to the Knesset. It was kind of a very, very near miss, otherwise he would have been a member of the Knesset and probably there, not here. So we are very happy that you are here. <laughs> Um, the power plan, or let's say the impact of the power plan somehow encapsulates to a certain extent most of the activities um, of Tabu Dabaras during the last years, which is this strange mixer of very politically loaded mixture of city planning, politics of land, and rights of the Arab Bedouins in the Negev. Tonight, Tabe Daburaf is going to speak about land, power and resistance in Israel, the case of the Bedouins in the Negev. Thank you. 
Thank you, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me uh, here. Thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to lecture at the uh, German Historical Institute. Thanks for Leo Beck Institute. Uh, actually, the British, I'll start with the British, the British uh, political geographer, Peter Tyler, actually, uh, theorized about the state, the nation state at all, any state, not only Israel, uh, saying that he described the state as a container. And then he moved in the last 20, 30 years to see the state as a leaking container. It's leaking container due to globalization and mass media. It's leaking container due to national problems in the national level uh, and regional level. Occupation, absence of recognized borders sometimes, and, uh, oh, and uh, locally also there are a lot of conflict, internal conflict, minorities, and uh, social and uh, national fragmentation. We'll come to this theory and see how it's affecting Israel in the end of my lecture, but now really would like directly to go to Israel and say that Israel is facing a lot of challenges nowadays. The whole region is in turmoil. It's regional uh, challenges and also uh, national and uh, internal uh, challenges. Uh, I would like to focus tonight on one of those internal challenges, talking about one segment of the Arab community, citizens of the state of Israel, the Bedouins of the Negev, and to try to focus in the issue of land. There are so many different things. I'm not going to talk about uh, social life of the Bedouins. Maybe I will mention here and there, uh, or anthropology. I'm talking about the issue of land and the planning and see this conflict between the state and a small minority uh, within the state. The issue of land in Israel, it's, it's a unique case, unique case for the democratic world. Uh, unlike most of cases around the world where the main, mainly land has an economic value. In Britain, in France, in other places, it's mainly have economic value. In Israel, it has more than that. Okay, after all, we are talking about the Holy Land. Land in Israel is a matter of identity. And this is actually behind most of the con conflict. In Israel, in Palestine, people are competing over not only resources as other places looking for oil and water, they are looking for history and geography and uh, try tombs, mosques, uh, stones, and you name it. Uh, so it's really a, a very tough competition. Uh, and this is why the case of Israel in terms of land and the planning policy is a very unique one. Israel is the only country in the democratic world that has so much land in its hands. Over 93% of the total geographical area of Israel is defined as state land. Can anybody give me an example in the democratic world? You know, more than that. I think there are only few countries in the world that hold 
the state can hold so much land, and those countries are China, Cuba, North Korea, and Israel. Okay? The, the country is controlling the land, okay, and, and have a very, very centralized uh, system of planning also. When we, we go immediately to the Negev area, this is a map of Israel. You can just look to the Negev area. It's a huge area of Israel. And the uh, Arab, Arab citizens, State of Israel, Palestinian, minority inside Israel comprises 20% of the total population. Some people think when we talk about Palestinians, it's only in the West Bank and Gaza. No, there are still around 20% of the total population of the State of Israel who are Palestinians, people like me, Arabs, okay, that have relatives in Gaza and the West Bank, but we are different from other Palestinians because we were there in 1948 when the Israel was proclaimed in 1948. My dad was there, my family was there before the proclamation of the State of Israel. So we became a minority, okay, in 1948. Majority of Palestinians following 1948 became a minority within the State of Israel. And you can just look to this, the color, light color, uh, uh, green color. Arabs in Israel are living in three, four major areas in Galilee, in the little triangle along the green line, okay? that unfortunately more and more Israel, you cannot find even one single Israeli map today with a green line, okay? There is a process of erasing the green line, and then the Bedouin community that I would like to, to talk about it today, those are the Bedouin community in the Negev, and uh, here is Gaza, and the West Bank, and the uh, the hills, Hebron Hills. I, I just mentioned this area just because so close to the Bedouin community and uh, over time actually the Bedouins have a very strong blood ties with those, those areas. A very uh, strong ties, socio-economic ties with Hebron Hills and Gaza Strip. Okay, the whole Negev area it's, it's a huge area, as I said, it comprises almost 60% of the total area of Israel, okay? It's huge area, yet only 8% of the Israelis live in that area. So there is enough place for some people think about bringing 1 million Jews to the Negev. There is enough room if, in, in this place, okay? And uh, unfortunately, well, 65% of this area right now is restricted for civic use. It's actually parks and the uh, military uh, bases and so forth. 1948, uh, before 1948, there were around 100,000 Bedouins uh, following the Nakba 1948 independence uh, war okay, of Israel. Okay, only 11,000 of them remained in this area. And immediately the first government, Ben-Gurion government, moved to concentrate them in a specific area. They were spread all over the, ne the Negev. They brought them to an area called the Siyaj. Siyaj in Arabic means fence. 
okay, in a fenced, fenced area, okay, and they put them in a specific area. And proper, I can jump now and say the proper plan is trying to reduce this area even further, okay? And this is the struggle over this area only now. Uh, the Bedouins in the Negev, just few, uh, a few figures, few facts. Out of 11,000 who remain in 1948 within the state of Israel, okay, prior to 1967 border, it beca they became uh, 200, 220,000, and they comprise around one-third of the total population of the Negev. Uh, they are Arabs, Muslims, their system of living are tribal, very tribal society. 60% of them already live in urban uh, places, in towns that established by the state of Israel or initiated by the state of Israel. Their uh, natural growth, natural increase rate is very high, one of the highest in the world with 4%. There is one group in the world that higher than this number. Can anybody tell me which group? Well, Orthodox Jews still, okay? So they are a competition over <laughs> growth within the state of Israel. So Orthodox Jews have higher number than this, and then the Bedouins and the Negev, and the third number, it's actually in Gaza Strip. This is the natural increase rate. This is the highest in the world, okay? Well, Orthodox Jews don't have two wives and three wives. Among Bedouins, 36% of the total marriages, marriage cases among Bedouins are polygamist marriages. 36%. It's very, very high. It's illegal, okay? And the projection of the increase uh, of the population to reach uh, 430,000, okay? Land is the real problem there. And, uh, well, the Bedouins never registered their land. And uh, the British were there. Through the mandate period, they called the Bedouins to come and register their land, and they refused to cooperate with the occupiers, okay? The Ottomans were there before. They called the Bedouins to come and register their land, and they refused to cooperate with the Ottomans. And when the Israelis came, the Bedouins there, but they also never registered their land. Almost 98% of the land that the Bedouins con controlled in 1948, never registered, so but the Bedouins, they have their own uh, tribal law, tribal conduct, tribal uh, tradition that everybody knows that the land of the Negev is a tribal one, tribal territory, and every tribe knows the borders of this uh, territory. Uh, in the same times, uh, they try, the Bedouins try to register this land, uh, within the Israeli system, but they didn't succeed. They have to prove that this is their, their land through documentations, but they don't have this documentation. They have a very slight here and there, some documentations that they cannot really prove that this is their land. Again, but they are there, okay? And they, they have uh, cemeteries, they have other things that to, to prove that there are some houses, even from before 1948, they have some maps, uh, that even Hebrew maps that were uh, uh, made by Jewish settlers and by the Yeshuv, the Jewish settlers in, in, in Israel, in Palestine, but as a proof that they are there. 
they have uh, other uh, issues related to land. Some, for example, selling land to Jewish people before 1948. Okay, the irony when right now, if you want to sell your land to a Jewish Israeli, well, it's a transaction that recognized in the state of Israel. But if you want to go and register your own land, okay, say it's prove it, it's not yours, okay. This is the irony within the, in, the nowadays. Uh, Israeli government policies toward the Arab Bedouins since 1948, uh, it it's really can be described, has three components. Try, first of all, to bring the Bedouins together, to concentrate in the Siaj area, and I showed you the map, and to urbanize the Bedouins. Since the Israeli, Israeli government claimed I, we cannot provide services to every Bedouin in the top of each hill, we have to bring them together and uh, urbanize them. But Bedouins will say, well, we cannot be urbanized. We are Bedouins. We are the desert people. The word, uh, the word Bedawi, Bedouin, came from Al-Badia in Arabic. Badia means the desert, the desert people. Okay? And also, uh, other component of this policy to finalize the land ownership claims. The Bedouins have their own claims uh, of uh, part of the Negev. Okay? Well, though that there is hidden and visible justification for Israeli policies toward the Bedouins. Uh, uh, Bedouins as a geopolitical problem. I showed you uh, the whole attempt to solve the issue of land claims started immediately after Oslo Agreement. Nobody did anything since the inception of the state of Israel. Only in the 90s, late 90s, they start to think about, well, two-state solution and the Palestinian state supposed to be in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and they afraid of in the Israeli, uh, yeah, they thought that it's dangerous for the Bedouins to be li living in this area and to claim, they are claiming this land mainly. They, they try to prevent any territorial continuity between the two future Palestinian states and any demographic continuity. So this is why the government of Israel moved to, uh, to, concentrate, to concentrate the Bedouins in certain areas. Uh, uh, also, Israelis' uh, plans so obvious that Judaizing the space. It's a Jewish state by definition, Jewish and democratic state by definition. It's not only in terms of people, it's term of Judaizing the space. <coughs> This is why also uh, need for uh, uh, establishing more and more Jewish settlements, even individual farms for Jewish people, and uh, need for increased plantation and development in the Negev and uh, military justification. Uh, nowadays, in the last few years, there's a, a huge project moving military facilities from the uh, center of Israel for uh, real estate reasons, okay, to the Negev area. Unfortunately, the, all of these uh, plans is actually targeting the same land that the Bedouins are uh, uh, claiming around Beersheba in the south. Also, there is a demographic, as, uh, Bedouins as demographic threat. Everybody think that it, it, it's a science, actually. If you are urbanizing people, people became, have less children, okay? 
Unfortunately, among Bedouins, it's not working. Uh, the highest natural increase rate among Bedouins exactly in the urban areas, not in the unrecognized villages, okay? It's uh, also the issue of fighting, combating the issue of polygamy. It's unsuccessful. I'm not sure if the government of Israel ever tried to uh, really fight the issue of uh, polygamy. Uh, it's it's uh, women, it's a lot of problems. Uh, women that uh, got people are getting married in Hebron, uh, the Islamic court bringing this woman inside Israel, and it's uh, and then uh, just think about uh, Mexican women uh, who's crossing the border and giving birth in in, in United States. It's something similar. It's it's a really problem. It's it's so from the Israeli point of view, uh, it's it's a demographic uh, threat. Uh, now, uh, there is a strategy for Judaizing the Negev, make it a Jewish one, uh, closing areas for military use. Today, two-thirds of the Negev is closed. for It's only for military use. Uh, forestation, the largest forest in Israel, it's Yatir Forest, it's in the Negev area, but also building Jewish uh, settlements and uh, individual farms. Uh, mainly for Jewish people, okay? They are trying to regulate the settlements of the Bedouins, try to do something with, with them, but mainly it's Judaizing and developing the Negev. It's, it's for the uh, Jewish people. Uh, so closing off areas for military, it's everywhere in the Negev. Demarcate uh, uh, fire zones, okay? Just put a... You cannot read it here, it's, it's written and it's, it's dangerous, it's a Kana and fire zone area. Uh, forestation, okay, it's everywhere and the JNF is very active in this issue and uh, the ambassador forest, a good example, in a disputed land in Al-Arakib area uh, where uh, ambassadors are investing some money and they are coming to plant trees in a specific area. But not only uh, the ambassador forest, God TV forest evangelicals who are coming to visit Israel, also visiting uh, the Negev and uh, puring money, uh, and for uh, they would like to see the Negev is flourishing uh, in that area. And this time, exactly on the land that disputed by the Bedouins, not in other places. Uh, also, one strategy is establishing Jewish settlements region in the Negev. As I said, there is enough room for everybody in the Negev. Okay? The question, why all of these settlements that are planned always in the land disputed with the Bedouins? Okay, that the land that Bedouins are claiming. And this is a real problem. Unrecognized villages in the Negev, there are almost 45 unrecognized villages. When I'm saying unrecognized villages, a village that never recognized by the government, doesn't have a jurisdiction, no local government. There is no representation of these people, no, no, no local municipality, no services, and uh, no paved roads, uh, electricity and water, okay? And nobody's really give them uh, uh, services. The government, uh, following uh, NGOs who are very active there, Adala, 
and the other Adal is the legal uh, uh, the legal center for Arab minority rights and ACRI and other uh, human rights organization who petitioned the Supreme Court and the court was each time is demanding from the government of Israel is giving services to those people after all those kids those people are citizens of the state of Israel so the court in almost in most of the cases were supporting the Bedouins in terms of providing services however the court never really help the Bedouins in the issue of, uh, to make a legal case uh, in the issue of land. Land is a matter of identity, land, it's, it's a real problem in Israel. So this is unrecognized village called Isir, just south, outside of uh, Be'er Sheva. You can see how people live, and you can probably see the buildings of Be'er Sheva here, okay? It's close to the, uh, for some of you who knows the area, the prison of Beersheba, it's right here. You can see this, okay? It's, the, it's right here. So I remember taking a few people, a uh, delegation from the United States to this area, and they, they met the sheikh. The sheikh is the leader, tribal leader there, and it was after the uh, rockets that came from Gaza after the last war. And uh, one of the those the delegation member from the United States asking the sheikh, well, it's a war, what you are doing uh, when there is a war? Well, you will escape from the rockets, okay? So the Israelis, well, uh, residents, inhabitants of Beersheba, they have shelters and they can, but what about you? And they start to, start to laugh. So why, why are you laughing? Well, he didn't answer, he was laughing all the time, laughing. And then I said, well, please, just answer. You have a question. What you are doing in a case when there is a racket, sir? I said, well, hey, man, I'm looking for water to drink. Who cares about the, the rackets? Well, the rackets come, and we will die, and we'll die. But I'm looking for electricity. I'm looking for a water to drink, OK, for more basic things, OK? So this is still uh, one of those unrecognized villages. And El Arakib case is a very famous uh, case where uh, really uh, you can see it's part of El Arakib that uh, this village was demolished already 91 uh, times and rebuilt 91 times. Okay, this is Bedouins are very stubborn people. They are land. They are really standing, they can live, they can live in, in the land without, in a tent, in even without, un, under the sky, without any tents even, and there is a real conflict there. El Arakib is a case, I would like to give you a couple of cases to see that, how extreme the conflict uh, over land in the Negev, that unfortunately it's not getting to the Israeli media or the international media, a very few, they are getting very, a small attention this uh, case. Uh, 91, 92 times already destroyed this village, okay? And the issue of land, it can, can, can be summarized by that the Bedouins have this kind of documents, okay? That uh, you can read here, uh, this is purchase agreement with British mandate tax payment. <coughs> this stamps, British stamps from 1921. Uh, that the government of Israel has not recognized them, okay? People have this kind of purchases from before the establishment state, 
but uh, not uh, recognized. But also, uh, the claim that the Bedouins, there is a claim that the Bedouins are uh, no, nomads, nomad people that uh, really never cultivated the land. There are uh, many evidence to show that the Negev was a very cultivated from the British Museum here during the British mandate that people really cultivated the land. And the issue of nomads, it's not true. Bedouins of the Negev never nomad people. Just when we think, think about nomadism and this term, uh, term, it's referred more to Bedouins who live in Syria and in Jordan and uh, in Saudi Arabia and the Sahara, just because the whole area of Israel, of Palestine, is a very small area. Just think about it. If the Beersheba of the center of the Bedouins, and it's obvious, Beersheba the center, those people can wander with their sheep and come to where? If you go to the west, you will get 45 minutes from there, you have Gaza, an ancient city. If you go to the east, you will get to Hebron. It's a very ancient city, very settled and urbanized a place. If you go to the north, and this is obvious, the wander, wandering from south to north, you will get to Jaffa, to Jerusalem, to Ramli, to Lod. So people never have this kind of nomadism, the way we talk about nomadism in the Arab countries. However, there is Bedouins have this kind of semi-nomadic way of living. What's semi-nomadic way of living? They used to uh, leave their recognized and ancient their historic villages for a couple of months, two or three months, and then returned to their to the origin. Okay. They used to wander with their animals for two or three months and uh, come back. So they have the, a lot of evidence to, to, to show that they, they, this area, and they were cultivating the area even before the establishment of the settlement. There are the case, I'm going back to the case of Al-Arakib, the village that destroyed 92 times, okay? And there is a satellite image of Al-Arakib. This is a map from the Israeli map uh, center. Uh, and also, here is a very strong evidence of the people who used to live there. In Israel, they distribute Berber everywhere a voting card before the election, okay? So uh, the people of Al-Arakib got uh, this voting card, okay? And it's written, Ha'ir o Hakfar Al-Arakib. In the first election, they voted there. They voted in Arakib. So where is the Arakib right now? Why we have to de demolish that? So it's not part of the Nakba. It's it's destroyed after the Nakba. Okay, after 1948, and uh, people are claiming the land. Okay, the people of Arakib. The problem that the Bedouins are uh, demanding, claiming very small portion of the area of the Negev. If the government of Israel is going to be very generous and to give the Bedouins all they demand, they will control 5% of the total area of the Negev. Yet, when a, a newspaper like Ma'ariv, one of the major newspapers, used to be one of the major newspapers, have nothing in his in front, in the headlines, 
يو رايت بدهم يشتغلوا على نيجل ده بدهم توكن كنترول اوف ذا نيجل وايل ذي ار توكينج وي ار توكينج فيري سمول بورشن سو انسايتمنت از نوت هيلبينج ذا بدوينز اوف ذا نيجل اوكي اي وود لايك تو موف تو توك اباوت ذا بروفري بلان اتس ذا كرنت جفرمنتال بلان اوف ريسيتل ذا بدوينز ديسبليس ذا بدوينز وي كان يوز ديفرنت تيرمينولوجي بدوينز توكينج اباوت ابروتينج Uh, uh, the, the Bedouins from their village, okay? The government have suggested trying to solve this problem of land claims, suggest to the Bedouins, we'll give you 20% of the land and we will uh, uh, monitor this compensation of 80%. Uh, and also, uh, we'll think about uh, some to recognize or to settle, to build new settlements for you. Uh, Uh, but the, from the Bedouin's point of view, the outcome of the proper uh, plans is displacing up to 70,000 uh, from their uh, uh, villages, the unrecognized villages, uh, demolishing uh, the majority of the uh, unrecognized villages. Nobody knows how many of them and uh, move these people uh, to the urban, urbanize them uh, against their will. And uh, the most important thing, for the first time, there is a plan, okay? This plan of the power plans talking about restricting areas for Arab citizens of the state of Israel, the Bedouins in this case. Bedouins cannot live or purchase land in specific area. I grew up in Israel knowing that there is certain areas that neither me nor a Haim or Moshe, a Jewish guy, Jewish citizens, we cannot go in just because it's for security reason. It's a military areas. This time, the proper plan is talking about the area between Beersheba and Ashkelon, northwestern Negev, that restricted to the Bedouins, okay? And this is really, for the first time, a bill talking like this, it's, it's, it's very discriminatory, okay? The Bedouins critique of the plan that, first of all, nobody really uh, consulted with them about this plan. Uh, also, uh, the, the uprooting of 70,000 people, demolishing their villages, and uh, also uh, new criteria of recognizing new villages. There is specific criteria for Bedouin villages. While there are some Bedouin unrecognized villages with 5,000 people not recognized, the government is moving to recognize a very small, tiny place, Jewish places and towns with dozens of people living there, okay? Uh, the Bedouins have their own plan, alternative plan. They start to try to uh, suggest an alternative to proper plan the, with the help of uh, BIMCOM. Uh, it's the, actually a planning NGO uh, that works for human rights also and with help of Jewish NGOs uh, to try to just, there is, as I said, there is enough room for everybody in the Negev. Bedouins can cluster, they can live in specific area, okay, they are willing to move within their own tribe, but would they would like to keep their way of living, okay, to have more space instead of building two and three uh, uh, stories buildings, is just to live, just, Amushav or kibbutz, Jewish agricultural villages, they would like to keep their way of living, and the government uh, is not willing to accept that. Uh, 
uh, in the last couple of years, they moved to a real struggle that they took the streets, they uh, demonstrate against poverty plan, and uh, in this case, we, we saw for the first time women are taking the street. There's something in you in the Bedouin community. This is in Beersheba, one of the uh, those demonstrations, and uh, the issue of uh, house demolishing is a real issue uh, because all of those uh, unrecognized villages are not recognized, so all of the houses there, okay, are illegal. Even if those houses before the established, built before the establishment of the state of Israel, they are illegal. They don't, they never got permission for these uh, uh, houses and any new buildings that people are expanding and increasing in numbers. So when they build the house, the, the house is really illegal. So the government agencies are moving to uh, demolish these houses. And we saw that this is a real struggle against uh, demolition of houses. The, the, the struggle of the Bedouins, I will say, uh, for better life, for recognition, it became from local to national. I mean by that, it's a matter of the Arab community in Israel, okay? Uh, the Islamic movement and other parties that came from the north really tried to uh, join the struggle, and you can see it's became the Bedouins, uh, nothing to hide. They are so far from this issue of identity. If you ask the Bedouins, how you describe yourself, I say, I am a Bedouin. First of all, I am a Bedouin. Now you hear, I am a Palestinian, okay? So you can see these flags everywhere, okay? And uh, it became a national protest. And then uh, the protests again problem from quiet to violent protest. You can see they are willing to confront the police and because of the issue of land, Okay. By the way, some of the Bedouins are serving Israeli army. In the same time, <laughs> I saw in some of those demonstrations, people and the confrontation, uh, people coming with their uniform, ID, IDF, Israeli Defense Forces uniform, and they are confronting the police. Okay. So it's very interesting. They are willing to confront the police, and we are they are willing to pay a price and to be get arrested. Uh, because of the issue of land, it's really so important for them. Well, the Bedouins so far tried the court, suggested an alternative plan. They tried the international community, uh, advocacy, all means of struggle. And now they move to something else that's very dangerous in one hand and that the government of Israel have nothing to do. It's not cannot overcome this issue. It's really a problem, which is going back to the tribal law. Going back to the tribal law, nowadays you can see in the Bedouin newspapers, Arab newspapers, in the Beersheba and in across Israel, there is ads. An ad saying from one family to the Bedouins in large, okay? And there is an, it's in Arabic, another one in Arabic, here we go. Using tribal law and traditions. Let's read it together. Or you can read it. Uh, a clarification and warning. It's a warning. One tribe is threatening any other tribe who is getting to my land. It's my land. I don't care if the government of Israel is deciding to give you the land. Okay? And to, you cannot. 
you cannot live in my land. You didn't give my permission. The government said it's going to confiscate this land. We know that. The government has the power to do that. But you don't have the legal or the moral manner uh, to come and live in my land. So the Bedouins okay, cannot really move to live in this, in this new territory. I'm trying to say when the tribal law confront, okay, con contradict the civic law, the tribal law has the upper hand, okay? So Bedouins are not willing to move uh, to somebody else's land, okay? Even if it's confiscated by the government. So we want to point out and warn everyone not to buy the piece of land in question as anyone who is in, in but to buy it will be responsibilities and be held accountable according to deep, deeply rooted Bedouin customs and traditions. Beware, El Afinish family. Okay, who is threatening? Not the person. It's the tribe. It's the family. It's the clan. Okay, and Bedouin tribes are afraid of blood uh, confrontation. Okay, it's happened already. Okay? And it's enough, one, two, three cases, blood confrontation, to stop everything. So we got to this, and uh, one, more, one more case, very important case, of Umm al-Hiran. Umm al-Hiran is a Bedouin village that a Bedouin tribe, Abu al-Ki'an tribe, that used to live in uh, Summit Bitkama. So it be a bit calmer for those who really know where is it. It's, it's, it's a very strategic place. The government 1956 decided to move the tribe because a really a strong main tribe, okay, to move them to the border, to protect the border of Israel, the green line. So they moved them to live close to the border in at Yatir uh, forest and uh, they confiscated their land and give, gave their land to the kibbutz Shuval in the Negev, okay? And there is enough documentation to show that. And now, that is, the, the government has different plan now, okay? To destroy the village of Umm al-Hiran, okay? You see those houses, okay? And to build Hiran, the Jewish Hiran. A Jewish town that already approved to be built in the ruins of Umm al-Hiran, okay? And this is a real case. Unfortunately, even the Israeli court in this time, it's not, not, not to interfere in this issue. Again, it's a matter of identity. We are, okay, going back to the container issue. And I would like to open uh, the floor for questions and discussion. The government of Israel is moving to increase its Jewishness of the state. We are trying, it's, it's, it's a process, especially under the right-wing governments in the, right, in the last 10 years. Think about uh, the uh, issue of uh, national, state national bill that introduced to the, uh, now, NGOs bill, power bill, the attack on the uh, high supreme uh, court, sorry, it's, it's uh, banning the Islamic movement. It's all, okay, the government's trying to stop the leaking of the container, increasing the Jewishness of the state, which implied that less democracy and more Jewishness of the state, okay? While the container actually leaking in 
from different, uh, for different uh, uh, reasons. It's leaking because of the occupation. It's leaking because the issue of Palestinians, the border, the Greenland border, and the issue of Palestinians not solved. It's not, maybe these kind of things cannot really help that much if, if you, the NGOs bill and others always, and even if you're banning the Islamic movement, well, those people are not going to disappear. They are there. Yes, I agree that the rhetoric of the Islamic movement is very radical, it's very extreme. But within the Israeli democracy, there are others really in the right wing also extreme. Nobody's really dealing with them, okay? But again, the most important thing, those people are not going to disappear and they, so far they played within the uh, citizenship uh, according to the Israeli laws. And I think there is enough laws in Israel to just to bring the people who are really extremists to the, if they incite, they are accused of incitement, bring them to the, uh, to the court, okay? And this is not happening. I don't think that it's, the state of Israel is really solving its problem by dealing, okay, uh, by, by enacting new laws, discriminatory laws, sometimes really extreme laws that, uh, uh, that really shrinking and reducing the space of the Arab citizens, but not only the Arab citizens in Israel. Uh, well, uh, we are trying to do something. I would like to finish by that saying, the Abraham Fund Initiative, my organization that I'm leading with a, a Jewish uh, friend called uh, Amnon Soliziano, with, the, with cooperation with the ID, Israeli Democratic Institute, IDI, Israel Democratic Institute, we invited the government representative of the government and the representative of Umm al-Hiran village, the chairman of the local committee of the unrecognized village of Umm al-Hiran that is going to be destroyed, and to think together, yes, this village, okay, and to think together how we can found a solution for these people, okay? We call it a uh, solution with agreement. We agreed on a solution. Instead of going and confront, uh, I just would like to mention some of those people are serving the Israeli army. They are good citizens, okay? And you already, the government, uh, moved them, displaced them one, one time, okay, in the 50s. Why you have to do it one more time? Why you have to add the urbanism? Yes, the government suggesting for them to move to Hora, one of the urban uh, towns. They are refusing to go there. They would like to continue living in this area, but the government have other, uh, uh, other uh, ideas, especially establishing and already have, this is the jurisdiction of the Jewish town of Hira, even the same name, okay? And this is happening in Israel 2015. It's really bad. What we have to see within the Israeli society, uh, we, the Arab citizens, are waiting to hear more inclusive messages from the leaders of the state. We are so happy that we have the president driven, really, he's trying to look for a common ground for, for Israeli citizens. Unfortunately, the current Israeli government is going to different uh, direction. Uh, the right-wing government is inciting even sometimes. Uh, we, we just remember the statement by the prime minister in the election day when he's, 
talked when he stated that Arabs are coming uh, to the ballots in droves. Okay, well, Arabs have the right to vote just like anybody else, and they have even lower turnout within the state of Israel. Okay, so when some ministers calling for uh, uh, boycotting Arab towns, it's really it's not. While we have to build an inclusive society, and uh, after all, Arabs there they are not going to disappear. Jews there are they are not going to disappear. We live in one state and we have to find the common ground and thank you. Thank you very much, Talbet, for your extremely challenging lecture about identity, land and politics. I'm sure there are questions out there on the floor, so I'll open the floor for questions. Yes, please. I'll just ask a point of information. We talked a lot about unrecognized villages and recognized villages. And I'd gather you say that unrecognized villages have no rights at all. But what rights do recognized villages have? Can they be secure against the government or uh, are they also insecure? Well, unrecognized villages, they still have some rights. They are citizens of state of Israel. They, for example, voting for the in the Knesset. Both recognized and unrecognized, they are entitled to vote in the Knesset. Okay? Even there is one a member of Knesset, a Bedouin member of Knesset, is from one of those planned towns. <coughs> but in the unrecognized village, there is no basic services. Just imagine a community of 5,000 people without anybody in charge of uh, local services, for example. Okay? So in terms of services, they don't have the services. They have minimal services. They have some schools, not only in their own villages, after the petitioning the Supreme Court. In Israel, every kid entitled to education, and they are getting education, but according to Israeli law, every kid in, in the age three should have preschools. 70% of the Bedouins of the unrecognized villages still without preschools. Even the law is stating, it's obviously that every kid in three should, be, should have access to uh, preschool uh, system. So uh, in, the, in the recognized villages, we'll talk about towns, they have basic services. This is the most important thing. They have uh, education high, uh, for high school. Uh, I can say we, uh, we can argue which kind of services they have, but yes, they are entitled. They have electricity, water, uh, all these kind of things. No, in terms of land, neither in neither case, all of the land of the Negev is registered uh, under the uh, state of Israel. As I said, 93.5% of the total area of Israel is defined as a state land. Yet, people are leasing the land, okay, in a lease, okay, just like the Jewish people uh, in the Kibbutzim and the Mushavim. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for that really informative talk. Um, I had three questions I wanted to ask. Yes. Um, one's uh, um, might seem a bit banal, but I was quite interested when you said that one thing the state is trying to do is to increase agricultural production in the Nakab or the Negev, and I wanted to know what kinds of agriculture are they trying to uh, 
cultivate and you see about the Bedouins or the government? Well, if the, if there is bed well if there is Bedouin agriculture increasing in the Negev, I would like to hear about it. But I was wondering more about the government initiatives okay. and what uh, where where do the laborers who are the laborers um, in these increased agricultural areas as well? I was wondering about that. Um, the second question I had was I thought that the government. Um, last year, the year before, had actually decided to put the power plan on hold officially. But if they're unofficially kind of going ahead with it, I was just wondering if you could explain that distinction. Um, and then the last question was about the, um, the slide you had of the advert in the local newspaper. Yes. That was really, really fascinating. And I, I wanted to know whether you've seen any evidence of um, Bedouin tribes or families actually carrying out customary law uh, when purchases are being made now, if they are, or do you see a customary legal system actually operating parallel to the Israeli um, legal system? So that, that was the last question I had. I will start from the end, yes. There are actually a customary legal system is returned to work. People out of fear, out of respect, mixed with fear. Nobody's, it happened that the last few years, people were killed because they just tried to move, okay, were killed. Others just expelled. When the, when the government saying to X, hey, I'm designated for you, I will give you a lot of land to build your house in one of the towns, just move. But that land is claimed by somebody else, and the government never finalized that claim, okay? So the Bedouins will go to the Bedouins who moved. Hey, listen, this is mine. And in most cases, people will just return. They are not uh, taking, it's a risk for them. In two, three cases where people were killed because they moved to somebody else. So everybody's not willing to do it, okay? So. Uh, yes, it's stopping, uh, every, stopping everything now. This uh, brought the government to Israel to think about uh, creative ways, looking for undisputed land, to offer some lands for people in undisputed land. This is what we are trying to give, tell the government. Why not establishing two, three, four towns for the Bedouins in the so-called state land, land not disputed, not claimed by any, anybody, okay? And they are thinking about that, and we are working with the government trying to solve, find ways to solve just the case of Amilhiran, one case. Uh, in the issue of uh, Bravar, yes, Bravar was uh, passed in the first reading a couple of years ago. In Israel, a bill should be introduced to the Knesset and pass three different stages. The first reading, second and third. The first reading was passed in the Knesset in a slim majority, the Labour Party and the left, even Shas, voted against the, uh, this bill a couple of years ago. And uh, following clashes between the government and young Bedouins, it stopped. It's a lot of pressure, even international pressure, even from the British government. They stopped that, and they, they are trying to think about creative ways to go around. But Bravar is still there. Okay, not abolished, and there are some segments of it 
the planning segments are underway. Okay? And uh, in terms of the issue of agriculture, well, think about uh, our arid land cultivation, spices, this kind of things. It's, it's very... For agriculture, you need water, first of all. And there is a scarcity of water in Israel in large, particularly in the Negev. So even right now, we see that the Israeli kibbutzim and mushadbim in the Negev, it's moving to work more in things that can limit the amount of water. It's more animals and raising cows and sheep and camels and this kind of things, some spices or some plants that really needs less water than cactuses and this kind of things. Uh, two interconnected questions. Yes. I, I must admit I don't really know how the um, fact came about that the state owned every land of 95% of the land, sort of it's a, basically a state feudalist system. Uh, uh, how, how was it actually introduced and was it a debate at the time between uh, uh, well, the international powers when, when this state of Israel was uh, uh, founded. And if that is the case, this 95%, who owns the rest of the 5%? Okay. Uh, and why is there private property, obviously, at the same time as there is uh, this majority of state land? Okay, uh, well, uh, actually, it's a uh it's a tradition within the Zionist movement before the inception of the state of Israel in 1948. Okay? There are Jewish organizations, the Jewish National Fund mainly, Rothschild family and others who purchased land. And from the Zionist ideology, it's the collective, the collective land, the, the kibbutzim and the mushavim ideas that it, it's very unique, very unique, historically very unique, really. So the Zionist movement succeeded to purchase around 6% of the total area of Palestine even before 1948, okay? They purchased some land 1940, until 1948. Now, following the Nakba and the uh, deportation and of, of the flood of... Uh, around seven to 800,000 Palestinians, they left something, okay? All of their uh, uh, real estate, their land, lands, okay? Actually confiscated by the Israeli government. This is one hand, it's the land of the refugees, but also there are other lands that it's a, it, it was a public, Palestinian public land, or a public land in large, the so-called Islamic endowment, Waqf Islami, okay? the so-called Musha, the so-called uh, state land before, okay? So it, it's, it's became actually 85% of the total land of Palestine was actually under the control of Palestinians in different ways. It's either Musha, endowment, Islamic endowment or private land. And uh, now uh, it's became, it's, it's very centralized land and the planning system in Israel, as I said. Land in Israel cannot be purchased. Land in Israel can be leased for 49 years. All the kibbutzim and the mushavim that you see in Israel, it's, it's, it's a state land. 
Only seven, around seven, six and a half, seven percent, it's a private land. Three and a half percent, it's a private land for owned by the Arab citizens, just like me. I own a few dunams, for example. Okay, three and a half percent. Add to that, two percent, it's a pri Jewish private land. Some Jewish people just purchased this land and they, they didn't give it to the government, never. It's especially in the cities in Tel Aviv, in Jaffa, in Haifa, in Betah Tikva, and other places. And there is one person, it's the so-called international domain. After all, it's the Holy Land, a German colony, a few Russian churches, and so forth. They have some real estate within the state of Israel. This is the divide, and this is a private land. Yes. Ah. Could you enlarge? You, you, you mentioned that, uh, I don't know, 85-70% was partly Palestinian-owned, partly owned by the state. What's the breakdown? I think you're talking about before 1948. Ah. Really, nobody knows the exact figures. Even I don't know, just because nobody knows how much land was in the hands of the Islamic, for the Islamic endowment. Since it's became a secret in Israel, okay? So because if you go back to 1948, the Israeli government took control of the Islamic endowment, Islamic mosque, but they didn't do it with the Christian endowment, for example. This is why the Christian minority in Israel, the Arab Christian minority, they, are, they have their own buildings. They, 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 nobody confiscated them, just because of the Vatican and uh, uh, international relations and so forth. Uh, it can be, uh, the people talk about that Islamic endowment, it's around 25 to 30%, and I'm not, I'm not sure about this figure. But still, most of the land was private land. And then we have the issue of the Negev that never really, uh, uh, nobody knows exactly what's a private land, what's a public land, because nobody registered the land. By the way, the British started to register the land in Israel-Palestine in 1922. And they started from the north, okay? And they reached 1947 until almost Kiryat Gat, uh, the hills of, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, but they, you know, uh, most of the land problems in Israel is either in the Negev or in Jerusalem, okay? Because there is no real registration of land uh, in the taboo. And this is the real problem. I would like to come in with a question. Um, following your lecture, it seems to me that um, the Bedouin seems to get a crush between two very complicated conflicts, an Israeli-Israeli conflict and in a Bedouin conflict. On one hand, the Israeli conflict is a conflict between the future of the state, the state supposed to be Jewish or Israeli, which is not the same thing. Which means, is the future state to become um, democratic or, or theocratic? And the other in other conflict is an in the Bedouin conflict, which is probably most encapsulated in the image of the Bedouin soldier of the Tzahal, demonstrating in the uniform of the Tzahal of the Israeli army um, against for the Bedouins and confronting the Israeli police. And, and I think there are three levels, you know, from from, from a Bedouin point of view. One is one is kind of the conflict between, let's say, the Bedouins and the Israeli government. The other thing is the big questions, are they Bedouins or are they Palestinians? And the third one is the tribal law, right? 
And this reminds me a bit of discussions among the Druze in the Druze communities. And, and how do you see this? And what is really the impact um, 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 of the tribal law? Are then kind of Bedouins taking themselves outside of Israeli society, or are they lost somewhere? Yeah, it's really complicated. Uh, good questions, but really complicated situation. Since the Bedouins, first of all, they are tribal, very, very tribal. And some of them, they are going to the Israeli army, not because they became Zionists. No, they are not Zionists, just because small tribes are trying to, they think if they have the arms, if they have the state with them, they are stronger. So they are actually, uh, they feel that uh, being part of the state, they're giving a duty to the state, but they are getting a lot from the state also, became stronger, okay? But over time, the number of people who are serving Israelis is going and declining. Bedouins became more and more Palestinians, okay? For many reasons. I will give you one strong reason that just think about the geographical location of the Bedouins. First of all, as I said, the Bedouins, they really don't have that much relation with the Arab citizens of the state of Israel, okay? Because of the geographical distance, okay? Because of the traditions, all are Muslims, while in the north you have Christians, Arabs are more liberal, more open in the north, okay? Here more traditionals are, and they are very hopeful <coughs> to people in Gaza and the uh, West Bank, they are tradition just like them, okay? Uh, and uh, following 1967 and the border, the occupation of the two, uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, is there is something good happened with this uh, occupation with those Bedouins, the reunited families, reunited tribes, reunited. Some of the Bedouins really live in this area other than Gaza, okay? And they got start to get married uh, with, uh, with each other, okay? So they have very strong blood ties, very, uh, a lot of social ties. And also, Bedouins, when they would like to uh, sell their products, animals, they will do it in the Hebron market or Gaza market. They are they, very, very similar markets. But the dangerous thing, think about it, okay? Now, in the whole area, Hamas is very strong where, especially in Gaza, in those traditional areas, okay? In Gaza Strip and the Hebron Hills. Hebron is very, uh, Hamas is very strong there, okay? Well, it happened that Four years, five years ago, I went to Kahlon. Kahlon is the finance minister today in Israel. He's a very nice guy. And I'm not a Zionist guy. I'm not. Okay? I went to him. He was the Tikshoret minister of uh, communication. Say, hey, Kahlon, those people are listening to Hamas radio that comes from Gaza all the time. They cannot, there is no Arab. Uh, radio that broadcast to these people at all. They either they are coming their news from Gaza or from Hebron. And it's really have a very strong impact on these people. Let us do something. Said what? What you suggest? Said well, we would like to have a regional radio for the Bedouins. I want to talk with them. And I said, listen, I care about my people. I am not, I'm not doing that because I'm a Zionist. I'm not a Zionist. I'm doing that 
just because I, I, I hate to hear the incitement against Jews as Jews, okay, as people. We can criticize Israel, Israeli government, say bad things about the government, and we, but when Hamas incites Bedouins against the government, it's bad. Say, well, wow, we have to do something about it. Say, well, it's a great idea. Come back to me two weeks from now. Well, I'm calling him. I, I went to his office in Jerusalem. Then, I'm sorry, I can't help you. He said, how come? He said, well, the Israeli military, military who is in charge of all of the Tadarim, the airwaves, airwaves. Huh? airwaves say, no way, we cannot do that. Well, even Hatsi uh, Tader, Hafa, say, no way, we cannot do that. So th now, over time, people, the Bedouins became more religious, okay? More religious and more traditions and very affected and very influenced from the Hebron Palestinians and became more and more and Palestinians, okay? By the way, all of the Arabs in Israel, also in, the, in Galilee, and uh, it's became, if you ask me, yes, I am a Palestinian. Well, half of my family from my mom's side live in Gaza uh, in Jabalia refugee camp, okay? I am a Palestinian, but at the same time, I'm an Israeli, and I live in peace with these two components of my identity. That's fine. You can be an American Jew, you be a Jew supporting Israel, and you be American. That's fine. It's the same with me. I really care about my people, the Palestinians, to have their own state, independent state, and hopefully it's going to be a democratic one that protecting human rights, protecting women's rights. This is what I would like to see in the Palestinian state. At the same time, I will remain an Israeli citizen. I would like to see an Israeli society that I am part of very... Uh, very flourishing Israeli society. As an Arab, right now I'm discriminated against just because I'm an Arab. It's very structural discrimination within the state of Israel, okay? We have to face it, we have to talk about this kind of things, and I think the proper plan, it's part of this discrimination. It's after all, we are talking about citizens of the state of Israel, okay? And uh, Things are going in, in the wrong direction right now in Israel, and this is bad for Jews as well for as well for Arabs too. Could you give a question over there? A very quick question. It kind of ties into what you were speaking about right now. Um, the the question of identity, and, and I mean, when I was in Israel last, I, I spent quite some time with the Bedouin family, and from what I, what I experience from them was a very big pride of their identity and, and, and as Bedouins, not as Palestinians, not as Israelis, as Bedouins. Yes. Um, how, how is the relationship, is there any animosity between Palestinians who define themselves as not Bedouin and strictly Palestinian and Bedouins who might not like this melding of parts, as you speak about very strong tribal identity um, within tribes, you want to stick to your own tribe, you don't want to be melded into a melting pot. And with that, how, maybe a second question, organizations such as Hamas, how do they approach Bedouins? What kind of interaction, if any, is there between the two worlds? Okay, I think in the issue of how Hamas is approaching Bedouins, Hamas is not approaching Bedouin at all. Uh, Bedouins are aware of their situation, they are sitting in the state of Israel. 
but some of the, their kids really uh, uh, can be influenced by Hamas ideas and so forth. I think the Bedouins living, some of the Bedouins living uh, under very extreme uh, conditions, bad conditions, and uh, the government should do something uh, about that. Uh, the issue of identity for the Bedouins uh, very strong tribal. The tribe is very strong. I cannot talk about animosity with the others, but yes, they are very. They try to distinct themselves from others. For example, uh, if when I get married with a Bedouin woman, it's no way. Like Bedouin women only for Bedouin men. Okay, and yet they are getting married from outside the tribe. But the the women of the tribe, it's for the tribe itself. Okay, so this is the distinction that it's, it's a social uh, rather than political one. They can. Yeah, didn't get it. Can you explain it again? The, can you explain this point again? Yeah, I'm. I'm saying that a very strong tribal uh, stand. It's very. They are tribal. The Bedouins are very tribal. They, if you ask the Bedouins who you are, okay, the first thing say I'm will not say an Israeli or a Palestinian. I am a Bedouin. It's 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 a local it's a local I would say uh, identity okay, but then if you ask one more what else you say I am a Muslim okay I am a Muslim, then he will go to Palestinian or uh, Israeli after that okay uh, they are trying to keep their uniqueness uh, within the Negev area, they have a very strong ties with the Bedouins on the other side of the Green Line in the Hebron Hills. Strong ties. After all, those are relatives, blood related to the Bedouins, or those really originated in the Negev. Uh, but uh, I cannot talk about tensions or animosity between the Bedouins and others, uh, other Palestinians, and so forth. But can I, can I continue her, her, her question? Um, I mean. In your lecture, you also um, pointed out that suddenly it's not regional, it's national. You know, it's not only about they don't see themselves as Bedouins only, but they also wave Palestinian flags. And then, then we have the other movement that tribal law seems to come back. But if they claim land, does it matter for them whether they see themselves as Bedouins, Palestinians, or citizenship of the state of Israel? Does this change the way how they claim land, or is this just on another level, which has nothing to do with claiming land? Well, I can tell you, I start to study. I, for my first year in school in, uh, in Ben-Gurion University, it was 1975. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find even one single Bedouin that talking about himself as a, a Palestinian. No way, okay? This was 1975, back, and uh, I can say for sure, maybe in the whole Negev area, I find three, four people who's willing to talk about politics at all, okay? At that time, more and more Bedouins were serving in the Israeli army. Over time, okay, especially in the last 15 years, after Oslo and the whole issue of land that rise, Bedouins uh, start to talk. Uh, they have this relationship. After 1967, by the way, have they, this relationship with the Gaza and the West Bank, and still they differentiate themselves from Palestinians. They continue to be Bedouins. Re despite the fact they are talking about their uh, uh, 
blood relations, relatives, cousins in the other side of the border. Rising the flag, the Palestinian flag started in the last 10 years, I can say, maybe 15 years, following political parties from the north, from Galilee, okay? Uh, Balad, for example, Tijamwa, the Islamic movement will start to come and, and uh, visit here. If we talk about election outcomes, for example, until 1990, I will say, most of the Bedouins were voted for Zionist parties, mainly the Labour Party, okay? Well, today, 70% of the Bedouins voted until the last election for the Islamic party, Islamic movement, okay? 70%. Now, today, 90% voted for the joint list, Arab joint list, okay? Just think about this kind of things, how people, Bedouins are really changing over time, and unfortunately, uh, changing, uh, uh, they became more Arabs, more Palestinians, but still would like to uh, keep this identity of being Bedouins, okay? The more aware of their problems, of being part of larger people, but still they are talking about themselves as Bedouins. The tribe is the most important thing still. Most of the people, 90% of the cases are getting married within the tribe itself. This is why in some tribes you have kids, the highest figures percentages of people with special needs among Bedouins, deaf people, uh, handicapped people, it's among Bedouins because of this mixed marriages within the tribe, okay? So I can say, yes, more people are talking about being part of a national group, but still it's one more component of identity, still being Bedouins is very important for them. Can you tell us a few words about the Bedouins, their life and their position in, in the West Bank and in Gaza? Well, it's more complicated. Most of the Bedouins in the West Bank live in the so-called Area C under the Israeli direct control. Uh, they have uh, more, used to have more space to do whatever they want. Uh, neither the the Palestinian Authority didn't care about them, what they are really do in, within the West Bank. So now, in the last 10 years, especially in the last 10 years, more and more the government of Israel, the government of Israel trying to take control of Area C. Area C is around 60% of the total area of the uh, West Bank. And again, they are restricting their movement, restricting their, sometimes there are a lot of house demolishings but there is enough room for them to move around and to have some agriculture within the, uh, the West Bank. In Gaza Strip, they are more urbanized people because of the geographical space. Gaza is, is a strip really, a very uh, reduced, there is a very reduced space. They became Bedouins and traditions, but still not in way of living, but in their traditions and custom, they are more urbanized Bedouins. Urbanized Bedouins still have a lot of children, okay? And still you have three, four story buildings and the kids are living with the family in the same building. Yes? Hi. Uh, good evening. Um, does the government, these policies of displacement and um, containment, do they have the support of the wider public and the media? 
um, or is there resistance, um, both domestically and internationally? And when did the IDF start recruiting um, Bedouin um, soldiers or policemen? Um, and is that for any other reason apart from assimilation or Judaization or whatever? What do you think? Well, Bedouins really and Arabs in Israel, it's non-assimilated group. They have their own religion, their own language, really. We cannot talk about assimilation, we can talk about integration. Really, some Israeli uh, leaders thought that the army is a good track for integration of the Bedouins. Moshe Arendt is one of the leaders of this uh, notion. But again, uh, those Bedouins, you cannot talk about integration on the hand and keep them living in a misery in unrecognized villages for decades. And this is the case. I think the governments of Israel, especially the Labour, the Labour Party governments in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, really ignored the periphery as a whole, ignored the Negev as a whole, ignored the Jewish developmental towns. Okay? Now, they ignored the periphery, and the Bedouins is the periphery of the periphery. Just think about that. In all statistics in Israel, you can find the Bedouins in the lower level, socioeconomic level in Israel. Okay? Still, we can we see that the government of Israel, the current government, is spending so much money in the Negev. It's really uh, trying to develop the Negev, uh, upgrading infrastructure, highways, <coughs> Highway 6. In new towns and uh, new military bases and so forth, and new jobs uh, in the Negev. But the Bedouins are getting a very small portion of this. Uh, we cannot, they have to solve this issue of land and uh, settling the Bedouins and to offer the Bedouins different options of settlements. What, what the government is doing right now is asking, enforcing the Bedouins uh, to live in urban uh, townships. And they are rejecting that. The overwhelming majority of them rejecting that. They would like to have different options. Right now, a Jew in the Negev can live in a city, in a smaller town, can live in a kibbutz, in a mushav. Even some Jews can live in an individual farm. One family can have hundreds of donors. Okay? Well, the Bedouins say, well, we are the indigenous people. We are the desert people. We would like to have the same options of settlements, just like the Jewish citizens Jewish residents of the Negev. Uh, so uh, uh, the, some Bedouins start as back as the 50s to serve in the Israeli army. 60s, in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, the number went up in terms of hundreds of Bedouins served in the Israeli army. Even there is a special unit within the army called uh, uh, the Bedouin uh, unit, okay? And now the number is going down all the time. It's a secret number, nobody knows the number, but I believe that the government, that the defense ministry is succeeding each year to recruit between 100 to 150 uh, Bedouin soldiers each year. I'm talking about the southern Bedouins. There are Bedouins in the north. They are actually, they used to have similar problems in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The government really solved their land problems, and the overwhelming majority of the young uh, Bedouins in the north, they are serving in Israel army. Maybe again, one question from my side okay. about the Negev. 
and there's any perspective on the Negev. I mean, for, for very many years, only Ben-Gurion believed in the Negev and nobody else. And this has changed recently. You know, and, and I would be interested in why did this change? And even if this changes, the problem doesn't make any sense. It only complicates things. So, it's a total absurd plan, right? It really doesn't make no sense. I mean, I understand why somebody's interested in settlements, even if I'm politically against it. Ideologically, I can't follow the logic, but the proper plan seems to me totally absurd. How does this fit in in, 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 in modern Israeli conceptions about the Negev? And why do they put such an effort in getting the Bedouins in the Negev kind of um, civilized, that's a project. Well, the Negev, as I mentioned earlier, it's the, it's the largest portion of the country. It's around 60% of the total area, geographical area of Israel. First of all, due to real estate prices in the center of Israel, all Israelis want to live close to the Mediterranean, all Israelis would like to live in the, uh, in the center, in Gush Dan, Tel Aviv area. And now, not, most of the Israelis cannot afford it to live there. It's so expensive to live in Tel Aviv area. So they have to offer other options to Israelis. Also, just remember, take you back to 20, 25 years ago when one million Jews, just pure to Israel, migrants from the former Soviet Union, it's increased the numbers. Actually, many of them came to the Negev. For example, Arad is a city in the Negev. It's 40% of its population are Russian Jews. Beersheba, one third of the population is Russian Jews from the Soviet, former Soviet Union countries. If you take Zdirot, the same figure, around 35, Kiryat Gat. All of these developmental towns that became, where Orientals became now mixed, okay? This is one thing. The other thing, I, I believe that uh, there are a lot of new challenges, uh, political and geopolitical challenges for the state of Israel. 1982, Israel withdrew from, uh, uh, from Sinai Peninsula, okay? And there's a peace accord with Egypt. 1905 now, uh, we have this, this engagement uh, from Gaza, and there is a, a new problems. So you need the people to protect the border, for example. There is uh, now a new challenge of terrorist challenge in, in, in Sinai. Mm -hmm. So they have to protect this. And the Negev became uh, a very important uh, region for many, many uh, reasons. Just think about this, the Arab world map between Maghreb, Morocco, on one hand, to Iraq, okay? The Negev is the exact area where can split the Arab world to two, two parts. It's the Negev area, it's the whole, there is a continuity between Morocco, okay? From Morocco to Iraq. It's the only place there were cut to two uh, places. I think it's in the interest of Israel to try to help the Bedouins you said civilized, I don't know what civilization, to give the, the Bedouins, the Bedouins asking one thing, give us the same rights that you are giving the Jewish residents of the Negev. You give them different options of settlements, give us. 
Some of the Bedouins really would like to live in a city, mm-hmm. but many of them would like to live in agricultural uh, settlements. Why not? Okay. The issue of land. Those people they didn't fall from the sky. They are there before they established the state of Israel, and there is enough room for everybody. Why we have to target the Bedouins? I think alienating and marginalizing and discriminating against the Bedouins is not helping the state of Israel. Okay. So this is the real issue. The question is, uh, it's, it's a public policy, policy, okay? And uh, I believe that, uh, uh, yes, there's also conflicting, uh, I will say, uh, goals. The Bedouins are, for example, demanding a specific villages for the tribe. Mm-hmm. I don't think, if you ask me, I don't think it's good to give a tribe, it's the whole village. They never mix, okay? Mm-hmm. For example, Rahat is a, a city of almost over 50,000 people living in one place. All are Bedouins. There is no public space in this. It's, it's a city that it's a tribal territory within the city. Neighborhoods, everybody knows, this neighborhoods belongs to the Obra tribe, the other for the Hussein tribe, the other uh, neighborhoods for the Granau tribe, and they never mix. At, at night hour, for example, nobody from one tribe can move to that neighborhood. Even if there is a main road, you never even, you cannot drive in Rahat, in a city, just because it's the people uh, look to their own neighborhood as a tribal territory. It's like agglomeration of tribes living together in the city. So mixing people, we have to try. There is a new generation of Bedouins. We have to try to plan from the beginning. It's a mixed city, mixed urban place for the Bedouins, for the young people, and not to designate this neighborhood for specific tribe and so forth. It's again, it's, it's a, a public policy, I think governmental policy, and uh, those people really need a lot of help, and it's, it's the benefit of the Bedouins and the benefit of the, the state of Israel. Maybe one, two last questions. So I take one go and you answer. That's fine. That's fine. I am here. Okay. Simple question. Looking at the future, are you optimistic, pessimistic? Oh. Oh. <laughs> Simple. Yes. Um, I I'm wondering if the Bedouins are also fighting an even bigger force, which is that of modernity, and it is um, the question of if I if I want to live in. The, way that my tradition postulates within a tent. I don't want to live in government-built homes. I don't want to live in, in, in what modernity deems to be a social, a, a current accepted standard of life. So, for instance, if the Israeli government says, I want you to live here, I build you houses. You shall live in houses, and this is how you shall live. Whereas this goes against, if I'm correct, uh, culture saying, well, I don't want to be confined in a house. I want to be able to have herd my own cattle and herd my own sheep and live outside and move. So, yeah, I guess my question is, is this, is this veil of modernity also a big obstacle? Okay, well, I can tell you, nobody would like to move, nobody is moving, nobody is living in a tent in the Negev, no more tents in the Negev, okay? This is one thing. 
Bedouins are, would, li would like to modernize, but not to westernize. Bedouins would like to keep their own land. The question, what's modernity? They would love to be, to live in a life like kibbutz, to build their homes like a kibbutz. They love highly value space. Should they have the right to live just the way that kibbutz Be'eri, kibbutz, uh, other kibbutzim, the Negev, Shuval, and others have this space or not? Or to go to uh, story buildings. So, yes, there are still, they, they will have some uh, uh, tradition that you and me will not like. I think the government should fight the issue of polygamy, the issue of women's rights, okay? It, it's, it's really bad, it's really bad. Okay, I just uh, watching uh, the, looking, reading the Facebook today, women have their own, Bedouin women, feminist, few feminist women, are trying to fight the issue of polygamy. They were threatened by men. They are, you are going against Islam, against our tradition. We will kill you. And those women need real protection. So there are still some internal and cultural problems that we have to deal with. But yes, the question what's modernization? If modernization is talking about schools, uh, uh, internet, electricity, and water, they are in favor, okay? Uh, but not really to go to townships and so forth. Uh, if I am optimistic, uh, <laughs> in my nature, I am optimistic person. And uh, I am pessimistic in the larger scope of Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I feel the Israeli government is going in the wrong direction right now. Well, there are, yes, new challenges. If you look around Israel, and see the turmoil in Arab countries, okay? I believe because of this, the government of Israel should move toward trying to do something with the Palestinians. Uh, the two-state solution is it's fading out very, very quickly. And one-state solution is bad for Israel, it's bad for the Palestinians, bad for everybody. So we should find something, uh, if you ask me, uh, uh, to upgrade the one, the two-state solution. Still, uh, I believe that uh, it's not enough today to demand two-state solution. I believe there are some Jews who really attach to the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. We should give them the right to live there, but under Palestinian control. The issue of Jerusalem uh, should be solved just to give Jews as well as Palestinians to control Jerusalem together. To have two independent states, okay? 1967 border is the right border, okay? And the third thing, to allow return of the Palestinian refugees. To where? To the Palestinian state, okay? Not to Israel, inside Israel, 1967 border. Uh, and uh, at the same time, to allow free movement between the two parts of this one geographical space. It's a very small, tiny country between the Jordanian River and the Mediterranean. Uh, free movement, one economy, it can work. But right now, I think we have a really, if you ask me, a very bad government that's going against the interest of the Israelis from my, as an Israeli, I'm saying that, against the interest of the, interest of the Israeli people. 
hopefully the there is enough people, good people in Israel to topple this government. Mm. Hopefully this uh, will come soon. Unfortunately, Netanyahu succeeded in the last election to win the election through fear discourse, politics of fear. The enemy is there. Arabs are uh, coming to the ballots in droves and this kind of things. So I am pessimistic in this issue. But otherwise, uh, uh, I'm, I think that Arabs there not to uh, disappear, Jews there not to disappear. Maybe I can come and visit London from time to time, but I love my country, I love my people, I want to stay there. And hopefully Yossi and Danny and others will come and join us. The problem is that the good Jews are leaving and leave us with the right-wing Jews. <laughs> the good Jews are leaving us by, to deal with Netanyahu and the right-wing people. And unfortunately, and also we have on the other side, a Palestinian citizen state Israel, very radicals, people are becoming more radicals, and we have to solve specific problems to do something with these people. And anybody, Jews as well as uh, Arabs, citizen of the state of Israel who is inside against the others, we should bring them, him to the court, here to the court, and do something with it. Nobody is fighting incitement within the Israeli society. Uh, death to the Arabs is something, it's, it's every single Saturday, you can hear that in uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, study, study Bitar Yerushalayim soccer team fans are screaming, death to the Arabs, and nobody's doing anything. Well, obviously, probably we will hear very soon, death to the Jews in Israel also. Okay, it's really bad. Those kind of people should be stopped quickly. And Israel, the government's not doing enough to uh, really uh, fight incitement and discrimination uh, within the state of Israel. Okay. Then I'd like to say thank you to Tzadik.